0: The HEAL podcast has been created to explore my favorite ingredients for a long-term, sustainable, healthy human experience. We take an informed look into topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanding consciousness. HEAL stands for Healthy Eating a Living, so why not sit back, relax, be present, and enjoy the conversations about this unique gift we were all given called LIFE. If you feel this podcast has resonated with you, please feel free to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues, as the gift of knowledge is something wondrous. Thank you for your open hearts and minds. Alrighty, let's get into some delicious healing. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed the health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows, and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Daniel Vitalis is the host of Wild Fed. For 10 years, he lectured around North America and abroad offering workshops that helped others lead healthier, more nature-integrated lives. A successful entrepreneur, he founded the nutrition company Surthrival.com in 2008. And most recently, he hosted the popular podcast Rewild Yourself. He's a registered main guide, writer, public speaker, interviewer and lifestyle pioneer who's especially interested in helping people reconnect with wildness both inside and outside of themselves. After learning to hunt, fish and forage as an adult, Daniel created Wildfed to inspire others to start a wild food journey of their own. Headquartered in the Lakes region of Maine, he lives with his beautiful wife, Avani, and their plot hound Ellie. To find out more about Daniel Vitalis, please visit danielvitalis.com, D-A-N-I-E-L-V-I-T-A-L-I-S.com. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. How are you, brother?
1: Oh man, I'm really good and I'm really glad to be here and I'm doing really good.
0: May- You have been on my radar for so long. (laughs) I'm so looking forward to this because I'm a student of life and you are doing things that I can see myself doing in the future. And I don't know the best way to explain that, but uh, you know when you have a vision of different things that you want to achieve and different ways of living your life, and I look at what you've been able to set up for yourself and manifest for yourself, and people often ask me, do you have hope for the future? And I look at somebody like you and seeing what you're doing and teaching the world and just basically how you live your life and I have hope so thank you for that brother and I- <laughs> oh man
1: well i mean maybe you've been a little too close to my social media not me personally but <laughs> but no, that means a lot to me man how how long have i been on your radar just curious because my work's been through so many iterations over the years
0: well it's interesting nearly a decade ago my wife introduced me to the work of Nora Gagaudis in her book Primal Body, Primal Mind. And yeah. that was that was really one of the, the biggest profound insights into how to change my own health and that of our families, just through the basic principles that are outlined in that wonderful book that Nora put together. And I know she's been on your podcast and and she's promoted your work through the years and I've been watching as a voyeur, so to speak, (laughs) and, uh, you know, try to work this crazy thing out called life. And from a nutritional standpoint, I, I'm still tweaking each and every single day that I go mm. and through different modalities as well. I just spent a week in Costa Rica attending an ayahuasca ceremony and I've sat in different uh, plant medicine and toad medicine ceremonies over the years. And I guess following the biohacking world that's happening at the moment, as well as, you know, connecting to nature to the best possible way that I can in this modern world. So your are name and presence keeps popping
1: up in so many different aspects of this (laughs) i've touched into all those (laughs) worlds you're mentioning you know it's like i don't know if the roadmap always leads you know to the same place but i feel like i've had a similar map to what you just described you know
0: Mm, and that's where i'd love to uh to go with you today and and take this conversation is to that map of life and obviously it's it's an ongoing discovery and X doesn't actually mark the spot, so to speak, because that X is constantly moving. And, I, and I, <laughs> I'd love to have your, I, I guess, let's just start with the philosophy of what it is that you're fascinated on about this journey of life and discovery for yourself.
1: Yeah, I got kind of thrown into the world when I was young because my mom was a single mom, my father left us, and uh, I had a brother and sister, I was we sort of had to help raised along the way. They're uh, five and 10 years younger than me. And my mom suffered with a lot of mental illness and, you know, had a really kind of broken and destructive childhood. And I was, was like looking for a compass, you know, the value of a compass being that it's always pointing to magnetic North. And if you kind of have, you just need to calibrate to something. And then at least you have one direction down, you can kind of start to explore the world and have like a safe point to come back to it. I always had this idea that it, I would find that in nature and that that whatever was natural was a good foundation like a good north to point to And if we wanted to do something a little bit different than nature like that's okay explore it but know where to come back to That was always my guiding principle because you know I, I struggled to find one in the society kind of mm-hmm. around me And so over the years I've been following that compass, uh, and have gotten you know off track here and there, and gone down some rabbit trails. But ultimately, it's unfolded and unfolded, and unfolded, and led to where I'm currently at. Which, as you keep mentioning, is a journey. Really, I don't want to act like I've kind of made it to any place. But I guess what I'm doing right now, what's really what I'm passionate about, is taking all those ideas. You know, if we look at the hacking stuff, the biohacking type stuff, it tends to draw on our biological norms and we you know we act like we're upgrading ourselves to superhuman but all we're really trying to do is reachieve what's innate in humans i think with that and that's why it dovetails nicely and in in that world you'll find characters like nora you were talking about a moment ago because she's simply looking at like well what do we do with these ice age bodies Mm. in the modern Mm. world you know, we're built for a certain type of environment, we're built for a certain type of diet, and we've changed everything around us. So what do we do with ourselves? I think what's really interesting is to take ideas like the ideas Nora espouses, take ideas like the biohackers espouse, take ideas like I was, you know, I spent several years doing a podcast called Rewild Yourself, where I was looking at the idea of human beings as essentially the modern incarnation of our hunter-gatherer ancestors who had significantly better health than us significantly better health outcomes despite what a lot of people think and stigmatize them with um, how do we take all of those ideas that I just was talking about and how do we practically apply them and that's what I'm interested in right now is instead of what I was doing for a lot of years was saying how do I kind of live like a hunter-gatherer in the modern world but not actually hunt and gather Mm-hmm. You know, I was hunting and gathering at Whole Foods and at the <laughs> farmer's market. Yeah. and uh, that's like that was a very necessary step. And I still do a lot of that gathering there too. That's me. Uh, but I started. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, of course, right? And so, um, and me too. But I started to say, what What if I actually take these ideas about what a human being's like in nature, what a human being eats in nature, how a human being moves through natural environments, relates to natural landscapes, and I actually put it into practice? And so what I'm most excited about right now, what's really got, you know, is, is the sort of, uh, thrust of my work right now is being a modern day hunter gatherer in the sense that I'm actually hunting and gathering for food and then bringing that back home and processing it and turning it into actual meals. And this isn't something I'm able to do a hundred percent of, of course, I don't really think there's many people alive today that can, but for a host and a, a variety of reasons, but, um, but I'm able to do that. I'm able to hunt, uh, and fish just about all the protein that I eat, uh, I'm able to gather a significant amount of plant calories and you know, share that with friends and family and teach that out into the world. And I'm currently just launching a television show that I've made about it called Wild Fed and a new podcast called Wild Fed. Using this lifestyle brand and this idea of food as a Trojan horse that draws people back into a relationship with the natural world, a real one. Because a lot of us from my generation, the generation just before me, the generations just after me, we all have this idea about loving the environment, caring about the earth, wanting to take care of Mother Earth, or you know, take care of nature. But we have it—it's such an abstraction to us. It's very abstract, you know. It's like saying you care about the solar system. It's like, well, yeah, me too, but but I have no real relationship to it, you know. Uh, so what I have found is that the pursuits that get a lot of us in the outdoors and many pursuits that I've loved over the years, hiking. Uh, mountain biking, canoeing, kayaking, uh, climbing, all these things that we do to recreate, none of them actually recreate. We call them recreation, recreation, but they don't really recreate what we're after. They're surrogate forms of nature immersion. They're not the real thing. It's like we're using nature with those kind of activities, this is not a, not a diss on those activities, it's just something that I've noticed about them, is that we tend to u- do those activities as if nature is the stage on which we do our personal play. And I'm more interested in what if we only use those activities as the means through which to procure food off the landscape. Then we have this really deep, intimate relationship with the natural world because you start making your body out of the things you're finding in nature. And and then the kayak or the canoe becomes a way to get there or to bring it back. The hike is for a reason because when I get there, I'm getting something, I'm bringing it back. And so starting to put those activities back into their proper place, which are forms of locomotion, to move through the environment for a purpose, and so for me, that's hunting and gathering, and I'm sharing that with people. Whether they want to just learn a little bit about it, dip their toes in it, or go all the way, that's that's my passion right now. Is just getting people involved in it.
0: Matt, I love it, and uh, even last night or the last last few nights, we watched Wild Fed. We were lucky enough to be sent a few episodes, so we watched that with the kids. And my daughters are 13 and 14, and we were enthralled with it. You know. All of those beautiful things that you're doing in Maine. And I think the most profound thing I saw you do was pick up the roadkill and take what you wanted from that and, and do it in a very respectful and uh, legal manner. And,
1: uh, <laughs> you know, to, it's to, a complicated legal <laughs> web that we've opened.
0: <laughs> of course. <laughs> so there's so many legislations out there and so many rules that we can't exactly break, but we could bend some of them, I guess. But, um, you know, even just that being able to witness that with my children was just a beautiful thing for them to understand as well. I want to delve into your new series as well. But I actually asked my daughters last night because we were watching one of David Attenborough's latest, it was called Seven Worlds, One Planet, I think it is, or seven. I think that was the title of it. And I asked my youngest daughter, Indy, at the end of the show, I said, so what do you think, is the message or what what is the biggest take home you've got from watching all of these documentaries recently about the natural world? And she says, it's the animals are there to hunt other animals and to eat. And I said, yeah, there's one other thing that they show us as well. And she goes, what is that? I said, well, it's to reproduce. You know? <laughs> I said, it seems to be they're the two main driving forces of our natural evolution for all species is to reproduce. And for that to happen, we need to eat and we need to be eating a species appropriate diet that is taught to us from our parents. You know, And you watch all these different species in nature that is documented and each and every one of them, the young is looked after by its parents and taught how to hunt or, and taught how to feed for itself. So how do you think we are as a species now that we've got it potentially so wrong and what is the easy solution for this, do you think? And and you can add in sex into this as well because
1: <laughs> reproduction. Yeah. <laughs> It's complicated by these big, powerful neocortexes (laughs) that we're walking around with in our skull case here. You know, I mean, there's all those things that you just mentioned, and they are the core survival needs that keep a species, not just here on the planet, but keep it adapting and evolving eventually to the ever-changing environment. You know, it's interesting as we come up against this climate crisis or this idea of climate change. I know I'm just kind of beating a dead horse when I say this, but it's like, I guess, you know, humans have a hand in this, but, um, but our climate has always changed, just like everything around us has always changed. You look at the work of Nora, like we talked about before, she's looking at human beings during the last ice mm-hmm. age, a radically different climate than today. I mean, it's a much warmer place, right? So the environment's always changing and, and mm-hmm. our job's constantly to adapt to it, right? And so there's that thing of needing to eat, And there's that thing of needing to reproduce. And then the background of that is also continue your species, carry your species lineage forward and try not to let yourself blink out. And be careful not to over-specialize because if you do and your niche is disrupted, you disappear, um, what I'm most disturbed by, there's no easy fix, by the way. I like that you asked that. Can, can, you, can you explain that last section uh, about the nation to over-specialize? Yeah, like if I'm a species that's dependent on uh, long tracks of unbroken old-growth forest, like some species of owl today, mm-hmm. and then those forests are cut, even though there is lots of room for the owl still it can no longer live here because it's it's not capable of um, adapting to the new environment gotcha so that would be like an example or if i was a species that was absolutely dependent on another species mm-hmm. and then something happens to that species right yep. or you're a species that um gets so dependent on agriculture <laughs> <laughs> that, you, that you develop out a massive, hyper-specialized built environment, and then you can't keep up with the amount of resources required to fuel that built environment, you know? We're, we're, Are you talking about human I here? Yeah, I think, that, I think that it's interesting when we look at uh, what we've done because we're not really having the right... Com- I don't think we're having the right conversation. We've gotten pretty ego-driven, so there's a lot of conversation about um, how do I fix me? How Mm -hmm. do I hack me? How do I improve my health? That's important, of course. The questions that we're not asking ourselves, the things we're not talking about is our species. Mm. Um, We've already done some things to ourselves that, I mean... I, I tell this story sometimes, and uh, these are these are topics that are hard to talk about today. Especially, are are you in Australia right now?
0: I am in Australia, and you can. Yeah. We have an open platform for you to go as deep as you want, and nothing is off limits, mate. I
1: appreciate it. Well, it's more like the climate here in the states. It's you know we have free speech, but of course it's there's a lot of PC culture right now, so it's difficult to talk about some things just because they touch on emotional topics for people, but. One of the things that I uh, saw when I was lifeguarding uh, on the beaches in Maine, we have some really nice coast here. And, and so I was working doing the ocean rescue thing. And in our uh, like gear locker, there were kind of like class photos of every year's lifeguard squad going back into the 70s. And you look back in the 70s and the, the the quality of the person was just astounding. The level of physical fitness, the lean muscle mass, the, the dental arches, the, the physical structure, these people were, all of them were just stunning examples of fully developed humans, you know, these, these well-rounded watermen and waterwomen. And then each year you could kind of look, I mean, I was noticing this, I was probably 19 years old, you know, it was, I wasn't. As sophisticated in my thinking yet, but I I could see this trend was really obvious. Each year, the people looked a little bit weaker, a little less developed, a little less fit. And getting down to the squad that I was on, where we were all kind of like sort of runts, you know, (laughs) compared to the people of just a couple decades back, we are now in a situation where the US military special forces cannot find enough recruits that can actually pass through their physical qualifications. Mm. The military in the U.S. is having a hard time finding people fit enough, capable enough for the job. I mean, we have altered ourselves dramatically through hyper-domestication and specialization. And so we're in a really tough spot now because we're not thinking about, I guess, you know to tie it all back around to what we were talking about a moment ago, is it's not just our job to reproduce and eat. That's, that's core and critical, but it's also our job to carry our species forward. I don't think we're doing a good job of stewarding the inheritance of our genome that's been passed on to our generation. I don't want to sound like Greta Thunberg, you know, like, how dare you? Right. Like, I don't like that approach because, you know what I'm talking about when I'm, mm-hmm. you know, when I listen to Greta, I'm, I feel mixed on this. I feel like, well, she's right. So, yes, but she's also really young. And she doesn't realize that as an adult today, I feel like I was a kid just a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I didn't grow up thinking like I'm going to contribute to the destruction of the world. In fact, I was trying to do what she's doing. And one day you're an adult, and all of a sudden the world's in, you know, it's like your turn <laughs> to, mm. to be the adults on the planet and to take care of the world. And it's like, hey, I just kind of woke up into this. Like, the world was like this when I got here. I'm doing all the work I can to help, you know, move the needle. Uh, So I'm not trying to guilt anybody, you know, I'm not saying how dare you. It's like, hey, we, we all are waking up right now and going, wow, we're in a weird situation. We don't even know what to eat. We don't even know when we wake up in the morning, like what we're actually supposed to eat. It's quite stunning. So your question earlier is like, what's the easy way out of this? I don't think that there is one, unfortunately. Uh, this is a really complicated situation. I think what we, we have to do is return to our last known point. So, uh, you know, we have a thing here uh, when you're lost in the woods. It's like, when you, that's the first thing they teach you. I'm sure you have some mm-hmm. similar thing in the bush there. It's like you get lost in the woods. It's either stay put mm-hmm. or return to the last known location if possible because now you know where you are. Mm-hmm. Our last like known point where we were actually like living sustainably uh, was probably like, you know, right around the dawn of agriculture. Yep. That was the last time that we actually had a handle on all the moving parts and things were well ordered. And ever since we've had many benefits that have come from the Neolithic revolution from agriculture. We, but this building of city states has is led us to the situation we're in today. So, I love this idea of hunting and gathering because there's it's kind of got all the pieces it's like it's like for me it's like returning to the last known point it's that a whole bunch of the stuff you got to do for your health all that biohacking stuff which as you probably have noticed if you follow that journey long enough you start to it's like it's like if you were, you said to yourself, okay, I'm going to get a backpack because I want to make sure I have the stuff with me I need every day. <laughs> and then you start being like, wow, well, you know what? I got to have a, I should have a pocket knife. I'm going to bring a, po- I should have a lighter too, a way to make fires. I better have some water with me. And it's like, wow, well, I should have some extra cordage around and I better have a first aid kit. And as you start to accumulate all the stuff that you kind of need, you start to realize you're being heavily encumbered by it all. Right. Mm-hmm. So similarly, when you're like, well, I'm, I, I need to have my biomat so I get, you know, correct restorative sleep and uh, I need to have my ozone machine and then uh, I need my orange blue block and light glasses that I'm going to wear at night and uh, I'm going to, you know, you start to add all of this biohacking stuff in mm-hmm. and it can get pretty encumbering, right? So what I, one of the things I like about hunting and gathering is it almost takes care of a whole bunch of that stuff. It's like I'm out in nature having real meaningful relationships with species and places. Uh, I'm hiking, walking, climbing, swimming. I'm um, I'm doing breath work when I'm diving. I'm um, practicing, you know, with uh, weapons, which I think is just incredibly important for men. I I just think, like, uh, without that, men often suffer. I'm not saying that women don't also benefit from that, but I think just historically, uh, this is a really crucial thing for Mm. men to do. And and I think like that the maintenance of that skill set is important to how a person feels about themselves to some degree. So, you know, all those kind of components, those historical components are there. And the biggest piece being that I get the healthiest food money can't buy. Yeah. I mean, the best food. I Mm. I eat, you know, and the the game meets, I'll say this like if you were over for dinner tonight the focus is going to be the game meat you know yeah. um what whether it's deer or it's a fish or it's moose or it's bear that would be like the focal point what we would talk the most about but some of the plant foods are actually so spectacular compared to the very dull palette of colors available in the supermarket mm-hmm. the The plants that I grew up eating, the vegetables and fruits, I I mean, you know, like growing up, you may have a similar kind of experience. I know we're continents away, but growing up for me, I just thought there was like six types of fruit. (laughs) Yeah. Like it was a shock to realize that there are more fruits on the planet that I could possibly ever try in my lifetime, even if I tried a different one every day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's, it's astounding. It's staggering. I thought there was apples, oranges, you know, (laughs) pears, bananas and a, a handful of other ones. Cause it's all I ever saw. And as I grew up and I started to understand domestication, I started to realize like, Oh, most, it looks like a whole bunch of vegetables in there, but it's not, it's actually like only like five yeah. you know, species. They've just mm-hmm. been, you know, we're seeing, it's like seeing a, a hundred breeds of dogs. They're all still just dogs and that's how it is with most of our vegetables. So, you know, in addition to the awesome animal food, the variety of plants, mushrooms, algae that I get to eat in this lifestyle, I just feel like um, it's so much simpler than trying to recreate it by making sure I'm doing all the things that just come pre-packaged in this really cool lifestyle that for me, I approach like a, like a somebody might approach, approach their yoga practice mm-hmm. or their martial arts practice. This is my practice. Yeah,
0: it's interesting you you bring up all
1: that, and I, I I've had people on the podcast before
0: that talk about an all carnivore diet. Of, obviously, of uh, Nora, we talk about a primal or paleo lifestyle, which is pretty much what we promote here as well, which is an omnivorous diet. You know, plant material plus the best sourced animal protein and fat that we can in our current situation. You know, and I don't want to get bogged down about. You know, he's carnivore, vegan. No. Oh, Let's get
1: bogged down on this. I won't but but I down. want to
0: bring up something very quickly because this happened to me two weeks ago while I was in Costa Rica on this plant medicine journey with ayahuasca. And we did four ceremonies over the week. And interestingly enough, I had this friend of mine that went to Peru, I think a year or two ago and was following a paleo approach. And she sat with grandmother ayahuasca and came back as a, a vegan activist. <laughs> And,
2: and it was really oh, interesting no. so i went in, <laughs>
0: so i sat with mother ayahuasca 2 weeks ago and i had a conversation as you do in that experience with what could be called grandmother or mother ayahuasca your higher self god whatever terminology you would like to call it and this might sound strange to some listeners but go with me here just just open your mind i was like okay I want to know with the spirit animals because I know the kookaburra is one for me and I know the ibis is one for me and the the kookaburra is sort of cheeky whenever I'm thinking about by direction in life, wherever I am, often I'll hear a kookaburra start laughing at me. <laughs> you know, like it's it's this bizarre thing that often happens. And interestingly enough, the ibis, which is considered in Australia as sort of a dirty bird, which I find absolutely fascinating because I see it as a survivor and it can adapt to any situation. Whenever I'm thinking about uh, a certain aspect of my life and a certain direction, I will. see an ibis fly past me or walk past me no matter where I am when I'm having these really big thoughts about what I want to do in my life. And so in the ceremony, I asked, I said, okay, is there another spirit animal? And all of a sudden, I flicked through all the animals and it popped up as a stag. And and straight away, I said, okay, what's the significance of the stag? And when you're in this journey, you can ask a question and it's either shown to you or explained to you what the significance is. And I said, well, Pete, it's time for you to go hunting and kill a stag. And I was like, well, fuck, okay. Well, why is that? And I said, well, you've been living like yourself. I was brought up with uh, my mum, had very little interaction with males in my formative years. Uh, I didn't really see my dad or uh, the male uh, aspects or parts of my family were not really a part of my life so i've been living in the feminine for so long and it was it's just said once you go hunting and kill the stag and eat it it will help balance out your masculine to feminine and you are going to film this as well so you can show the the sheer the journey that you have on this on this experience for you and you will show your respect and no doubt I will cry and feel great. I'm not even sure what emotions will come up when I kill them, and take the life of such a, a beautiful, beautiful, <laughs> done it yet. No, beautiful beast. <laughs> And yeah, man. I was, and, and all of a sudden I, in that thing I was like Daniel Vitalis I'm going to do this with Daniel you know it was just <laughs> <laughs> here we are talking about this yeah, yeah, talking about it. but it was interesting because I went into that ceremony going fuck, like some people go into this and they come out being a vegan, you know? From, right, right. Uh, whereas right. I've come out of it going, oh, fuck, are going to go and actually kill one of the most majestic creatures yeah. on the face of the planet.
1: Yeah, and you know, maj- majestic, but an animal that probably maximum in the wild is going to live, you know, four years or something, five years, probably capable of like seven, gets eaten all day long. Like, it is an animal that is, it. it is it doesn't exist without its predator. You know what I'm saying? It's a, I mean, yes, it's majestic. No question about it. We, we iconically so, but, uh, I just want to say that because I think sometimes people imagine vegans imagine like if you didn't kill that animal, it would just go on living forever, you know? And it's like, man, I mean, it might die this year, especially one with a big rack that's been around a while. Like you can't sustain that very long. And so, you know, each year that rack gets a little bit bigger. It takes more resources. The animal's getting kind of over the hill. Um, and usually when people are are taking a, a big stag like that, I mean, that animal's in its last couple of years of life, if not the last year. So I just want to add that, <laughs> add that in there. Mm, and just to even
0: go a little bit more after that realization came to me, I was like, okay, so I went and sat by the fire. And as you do on a plant medicine journey or whatever, uh, psychedelic journey you're on, sometimes you can have a conversation with the moon, the stars, fire. And uh, the fire said to me, make sure you build me. This will be the best meal. And I've been a chef for 30 years and I've cooked a million meals with my two hands. Mm -hmm. The fire said to me, this will be the best tasting dish you have ever had. (laughs) (laughs) So let's let's go a little bit deep on the vegan carnivore, Mm -hmm. omnivore approach.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There's a lot. Lot to unpack there. I would say it like this: since you you got pretty woo woo there on me, so I guess I can do a little bit of it too. <laughs> um, I think that the nature of this uh, experience that we have is binary. So I know there's a big push right now for this like non-binary approach. I don't, I don't think we're going to experience non-binary in these bodies. Uh, I think that uh, explain
0: binary and non-binary for anybody that doesn't understand.
1: It's this is the sort of foundation of most of the mystic teachings that you find around the world. The idea is that before incarnation, we are one. Mm-hmm. But when we incarnate, we are two. We're male, female, right, left, day, mm-hmm. night, you know, it's like everything. As I was You're, talking about masculine, feminine. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that the those come from each other. So that's that yin-yang concept. So male seeks female female seeks male because of the desire to return to the state of wholeness Mm
2: -hmm. that you
1: can't actually really return to in this body save for the medicine journey the meditation journey things like that that allow you to touch the fleeting and ephemeral experience of oneness right but in, Mm -hmm. in this dimension the one becomes two and then the two becomes four that's where in the mystic traditions, you get this idea of earth and water being female and air mm-hmm. and fire being male. So it keeps breaking down and becomes the 10,000 things or whatever. So we, we're so caught up in that that we tend to tick-tock between these extremes. And uh, one of the interesting things about humans is that we are the principal omnivore on the planet. We are the supreme omnivore. I mean, nothing can eat as much as of the environment as we can eat. I think people forget whether they're vegan or they're carnivores. It's probably more on the mind of the carnivore diet person than on the vegan, but what is food? I mean, food is the tissues of living creatures. Mm -hmm. So whether you're a vegan or you're a carnivore, you're, first of all, whichever you decide you are, you're actually an omnivore. So it doesn't really matter, right? It's like You you are an omnivore biologically. Even if you eat as a herbivore or you eat as a carnivore, you are not things, right? Uh, That's interesting because you
0: look up the definition of a human being, and it says we are omnivores. (laughs)
1: Yeah, we're we're obviously we're so obviously omnivores, uh, and we know it from three million years of archaeological artifacts. We know it from the the ethnographic studies of indigenous peoples around the world. Uh, It's really, really apparent. But the way that we do things fashionably in culture is we tick tock back and forth. Right. So in my lifetime, it's like I have watched the I have watched the trend, let's say, of it's the most fashionable thing to have pants that are tight at the ankle. And then right after that, it's going to be fashionable to have loose pants at the ankle. (laughs) <laughs> then, right after that, tight at the ankle, then loose, then tight. You know, at some point in your life, you get to the age where you're like, I don't, I just don't care about that anymore. You know, <laughs> I get where this is going. I always joke about eggs because, in the nutrition fashion, you know, nutrition is a fashionable thing too. If you don't think so, step back and observe it for a period of time. Uh, we have just gone through a long period of vegetarianism being the dominant political party in nutrition right? Mm -hmm. The vegetarians were winning. Uh, They held the house and the Senate, so to speak. And then now we're in this phase where, whoa, they're getting beaten back. These primal and carnivore people are rising up. And that's just going to tick tock back and forth, right? This is what happens. Like over time, we just do these two things when the obvious path is kind of like with the Buddhist idea is the middle path between these is the most sane approach. Now, Where you are on the planet determines a little bit about. I thought it was interesting what you're saying about the girl going down there. And, uh, you know, Peru is one of these places near the equator where the consumption of plants is much higher naturally Mm -hmm. because the diversity of plants is much richer. So, peoples of the equatorial regions consume a lot of plant food. As we get into the Arctic regions, you're going to find less plant consumption and more animal consumption, but here's what you are not going to find: you are not going to find. I'm talking about when you look at natural humans pre-agriculturally. So, if we have this question, you know, something I joke about sometimes is like if you pull up an encyclopedia or you get like a field guide and you look at any animal, I, I'll just try to wing it with some animals from there because I, I I don't know them really, but <laughs> but like if we look up kangaroo or wallaby, aardvark or something, we can just you know it's going to tell us its habitat and its range and how it reproduces and all that. And we can just go down and there'll be an entry on diet and it'll just explain everything it eats. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, if you look up people, you're not going to find that because we're cosmopolitan. And that means that we are distributed across the globe outside of Antarctica. We're everywhere naturally Mm. before, uh, civilization began as hunter gatherers. We were everywhere. And so our diet was pretty diverse as a result. Um, but nowhere was any culture ever vegan and nowhere was any culture, only carnivore. This is like, these are new, just silly, goofy, fashionable ideas of humans trying to try extreme things. It's like that silly art. When you go to like an art museum and you're like, why is there just like a toilet in the middle of the room? It's like, <laughs> oh, that's art, or whatever. Now it's just like silly. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just absolute hipster absurdity, right? So that's what we're doing right now with food. and. Up in the Arctic, and this is something that I haven't really got to drill down with Nora on this it's something I wanted to talk to her about a little bit because I remember the last time I interviewed her. I was in the process of making maple syrup. you know one of the things we do here in maine is in uh, you know in, in the northeast here of North America. As so we have maple trees, genus Acer, and in the springtime, early spring, late winter, when you have freezing nights and thawing days, the sap runs up these trees. And if you extract that sap out, and you can get several gallons a day, and you boil that down into maple syrup, it's this incredible mm. sugar source. So uh, this has been done here, you know, this was being done here by the indigenous people of this region. And European colonists learned it from them. And then, of course, like they typically did, you know, really refined the process and developed a more industrial method. But it's the same basic thing that the indigenous of this region were doing. Um, The idea that, you know, indigenous peoples or hunter gatherer peoples didn't have sugar in their diet is absolutely unfounded. I don't know where that concept really comes from, except that some peoples were living some people not everybody because there was there was the ice age didn't like cover over you know sub-saharan africa
2: mm-hmm. and there
1: wasn't glaciers in africa so while the ice age was going on european peoples peoples of european descent might have been living with less sugars in their diet but that wouldn't have been true of everybody on the planet does that make sense because a lot of mm-hmm. places in the world weren't under ice and there was plenty of plant growth and as i mentioned before things are always changing so it's not like humans don't naturally have sugars in their diet additionally you know, we have this mental image of these like fur clad, spear carrying hunter gatherers out on the ice pack or out on the glaciers, eking out a, a survive, like eking out a life. Um, this is not a really realistic picture. I mean, I'm not saying people wouldn't venture into those areas, but that's not where you would live. Mm. And what were these herbivores eating that they were eating? Right. So if they're eating mastodons, mm-hmm. Those mastodons are plant eaters, right? So it's not mm-hmm. like there was no plants around. That make any sense at all. Anywhere there's plants, human beings learn how to use them for food and as a pharmacopeia, right? So ayahuasca, the, this blend of two plants plus admixture plants, it's not really a food, but people figure out how to put these plants together, right, for medicinal reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so even in the in the era of the last ice age in northern Europe. It would have been something like the people of northern, let's say, uh, Alaska, Canada, Greenland, uh, Scandinavia, and across, you know, through Siberia. Like they, there's still people living there today, and in the winter time they don't have access to a lot of plants. But in the summer, everything thaws. They have 24-hour sunlight. They got plenty of plants around, and they're using them. So there's never been this time where we didn't eat plants, and there's never been this time where we didn't eat animals. These are two completely new ideas so we are omnivores and you want a relationship a a deep intimate relationship with all the kingdoms of life you know uh if you think about this is uh my friend arthur haynes i'm paraphrasing him here this idea that the most intimate act you do is to eat because when you eat a food you bring it into your body and you make your body of it. So therefore, that is far more intimate an act to do with another species than even making love with our own species in a sense. You make love with somebody, but you don't then build your body out of that person. It's like a pretty deep thing we do with food. The idea of like um, cutting kingdoms out of your life, like, well, I just don't eat from this kingdom. It's like, well, we we eat from all the kingdoms. Um, and we should eat from all the kingdoms. So uh, I feel bad for vegans because there's a dearth of, of meaningful connections with wild animals in their life. And I feel bad for carnivores because my goodness, I mean, and, and just last thing I want to say on this, how long has anybody, you know, really done the carnivore diet? I mean, that's maybe, that's like one of those, like maybe you make it two years, three years vegans, they make it like five or six years, typically 10 be a long time. You know, I did it for ten. That was that's a pretty long stretch. Yeah, you know, I did wheat? it for four. <laughs> okay, yeah. These are temporary fads that people do. You know, omnivory is not a fad; it's just the baseline. But these are fads, and so yeah, the idea like of a carnivore cutting out all plants from their diet—I mean, as you know from your ayahuasca experiences—are that's just what a what a loss. That's where all of mm-hmm. the medicinal information gets into our body from, uh, and with animals, this is our principal way that we interact with our landscape
0: yeah because i had a um a fellow on that was or i've had a few people on that talk about a carnivore approach and i asked them the question or the concept in my mind is how if we have a endocannabinoid system how does cannabis fit into that you know for, for somebody that shuns <laughs> plants and how does turmeric or garlic or mm-hmm. these medicinal plants or even plant medicines Mm -hmm. how do you how do you justify (laughs) like like fiber (laughs) yeah like so and you know i'm Mm -hmm. an uh, i'm an open book i'm i'm curious and i I, I don't want to dismiss anything but i do always come back that the only label we should go by is humans and we're on but even in a psychedelic journey sometimes even that is (laughs) that label doesn't really uh
1: exist for a
0: period of time and a
1: person's got to it's true a person's got to uh get really really honest with them so i'm talking real fucking honest with themselves how much of being a vegan is so you feel like you're not part of everything else you're just you're not you're not participating in all the bad stuff you see in the world you're above it you're special you're a special person who's set apart from the rest you're not like the masses this is one of the mm. biggest reasons people do this stuff whether it's carnivore or it's vegan or it's whatever it is is we're always looking i mean i'm not exempting myself from this by any stretch we're all looking for what makes this is that ego issue why why am i different than everybody else i mean cuz you know you got 7 billion people around that are that's a pretty overwhelming thing we're all trying to <laughs> define ourselves especially in this new radically new environment we've moved into the the social media and online environment in particular that is where your ego is what sells you so everybody's trying to define themselves and so i feel bad for people in their 20s you know Mm. 30s because in that age you're you're working so hard to try to define yourself especially in your 20s you know and i think with the social media environment where we're going to see is a lot of people doing a lot of stunts you know like things like that. I think personally, like being a vegan, I did it, like I said, 10 years, it was a stunt. It was a stunt. Mm. I wanted to feel different. I wanted to feel special. And I mostly, I wanted to feel like I wasn't responsible for what was happening in the world. And I thought that would kind of give me, it would absolve me. So now I, I just think like, uh, this is what a lot of people are doing.
0: Can I Can I go a little bit more woo-woo with you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you're going to anyway. Let's do it. <laughs> so... In in one of the journeys two weeks ago, I asked a question, as I do. I think I asked a thousand questions, and one of them was about being judgmental. And because I get a lot of people come onto social media as you, as you say and and attack or put their opinion in, it's like oh I never go onto anybody else's page and do that. That's not that's not my right. My, right? My Can gosh. you imagine
1: you're you're trolling somebody's comments? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like what? What, what what is it's so busy creating man?
0: <laughs> and I have shared a few things over the time where mm-hmm. um, parents have uh, vegan parents have fed their children a vegan diet, you know, and it has led to harm of that child. And I've shared that before. And I asked in the medicine journey, I said, what's the deal here? And the answer came back to me and I said, Pete, with everything that you know, and you're you're, you're very open and you're very curious, how can you say 100% that if There's a family, two parents, and they have complete unconditional love for their child and they're bringing it up as a vegan. Whereas you have another dietary approach, which is omnivorous, and you have that child with parents that do not provide unconditional love for that child. Which one will be more healthy and more robust growing up? The child with, uh, that has unconditional love or the child that doesn't have unconditional love and is, is manipulated, even though they're eating what you would call, Pete Evans, a better
1: diet. I was like, fuck. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it's not mutually exclusive. It's, I, it's not I, mutually exclusive. Like both I, are missing out on something, right? Like both I, would suffer. Correct,
0: you know? correct. And in the journey, it was like, because I asked the question, you know, show me who I've become. And it said, you are love. You are love, you are love, you are love. And through all the different spiritual books and self-help books and you name it, I've read plenty, you know, and it always comes back to love. And how do we get to that state of that unconditional love? I feel like our journey or that map is nearly, that compass is always pointing us or directing us back to unconditional love. And as children, we sort of get that fractured or split from that identity of who we are as that unconditional being of love. And in these journeys, you uh, whatever it may be, breathwork, meditation, uh, contributing to the wealth and health of other people, we are all pointing towards and and journeying towards that state of love. So what does that mean to you when I speak about those sort of things, about love and uh, unconditional
1: love? Well, I, I was talking before about how that sort of oneness that we come from is not manifest in this dimension. But when we, you know, there's that thing people say to, I just want to say it real quick. Like some people are like, oh, I don't need to do something like ayahuasca because I can achieve those states, you know, naturally. It's like, no, you fucking can't. I'm sorry, but you can't. You can achieve lots of states, but I just, you can't achieve that state. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that state, which is induced by DMT or... LSD or salasabine or mescaline or whatever, you know, medicine, ibogaine, however somebody gets to that place, man, that state, if you were to achieve that naturally, I would assume that you need like 20 years of, you know, physical preparation and training. I mean, this is not something that I've ever known anybody who could get to, but but you can get to it in like, you know, 30 minutes with one of these plant medicines. And I feel like what happens is that you touch into, you plug into that part of reality that's not manifest in that place, that oneness. I I would agree with you, it's like the universal love is the is what that place is, or at least it's infused with that. But then you come back, and the challenge is this for people who've done medicine journeys is you come back almost like a Christ figure when you return from the medicine. It's like, you come back and you're like, well, I got it now. I'm just going to tell the world. And then time goes by and you sort of integrate some of it. And then your ego, the guy on your license, you know, comes back (laughs) and you, you know, you're, you're changed, but you can't hold that state (laughs) for very long. It's very difficult to do that. So you go in there and you get that sense of universal love and then you try to bring as much of it back as you can which is kind of always the story of our you know our sages and our saints you know uh but then here this place is different this place isn't just like maybe Mm -hmm. the foundational elements of it are universal love but this world we're living in is not quite like that right it's really quite complicated and there's a lot of things besides love here too so you can uh you can get really fucked up here, right? You can get, I mean, things can go really wrong here too. So this is a challenge, man. I see that some people have, a, some people who espouse the universal love philosophy create a lot of damage in the world still. And peop, some people who are nearly narcissistic create a lot of good in the world sometimes. How do you reconcile it, right? There's a lot of gray. Like, um, there, are, there are people I know who, it's, the vegans are a good example because they, on one hand, they're operating from this place of compassionate love, yet how it will often manifest is as toxic vitriol, right? And then you might have like the sort of narcissistic business person who all is driven by profit, greed, and desire for reputation, but they might create a business that helps millions of people be raised up out of whatever circumstance. It's just a complicated place we live in, you know? I think like uh, all this stuff is tr- none of it's mutually exclusive. I, I don't know what I would rather be the kid I think I would rather be the kid raised with the, um, lots of love on the wrong diet, but I actually know that person. So I have a friend who was raised a vegan with so much love in the home. But as an adult, she's got all these health problems that are manifestations of a lack of actual nutrients but a very well-adjusted sense of family. So I don't know, it's a tough one. I mean, I grew up um, with a very little love in the home and a lot of abuse. But I found like with food, I could restore a lot of myself, but I'll spend my life working out issues. Here's what I think. I'll ultimately, Pete, I don't think that this life is a place where you get through it clean and easy no matter what. No matter what. There'd be no reason. So this is a place where you get your ass kicked from the day you're born, even if that's you know in the most loving way. You... you 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 know what I mean? A day after day, because it, it's how you grow and how you evolve and how you change as an individual. And so, you know, I have a friend who has unusually good karma. He was born in uh, the Ashtanga Yoga Shala in India under Patabi Joyce, the the now deceased uh, yoga guru. And uh, his mom was, you know, doing the full practice, nine months pregnant. He grew up wandering through the ashram, just eating bananas, a little vegetarian boy doing yoga to this day as an adult. Now he teaches yoga all over the world. He's never really had to do a lot of the things normal people do, like get normal jobs and all those kind of things. But, uh, so he's had this unusual, he's got like a, just a blessing on him. Good karma. But I've seen him take his licks. You can be sure of it you can be sure of it. And there's a lot of times I've looked at him and thought, glad I'm not him. You know, so (laughs) I don't know how you, it's a, it's a tough place, man. But the medicine I think is important because it gives us the ability to realize that this is a temporary incarnation and that the thing beyond this is more whole.
0: Really interesting that you say that because cactus journey, ayahuasca journeys, all of them are are beautiful and terrifying and Everything that on a toad medicine journey, smoking 5-MeO-DMT, in that experience, when the ego f- fully dissolves and surrenders, we talk about that, that unconditional love space. I didn't experience that, or it wasn't the unconditional love, it was actually everything. So, it was every single
2: mm-hmm. thing that mm-hmm. you could
0: ever imagine. And yeah. one of the best descriptions I've ever read about that experience from, uh, I think, it was Martin Ball. He wrote a book called uh, The Entheogenic Liberation using 5-MeO-DMT. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 I'm not 100% sure these are his words, but it, it was simply put like this. It's the experience that you have is basically like God giving birth to God while at the same time eating itself, God eating God, <laughs> while at the same time fucking itself. While at the same time, so every single possibility of emotion and light, dark, and everything in between, you get to experience. And it, it's overwhelmingly beautiful and terrifying at the same time.
1: <laughs> it's really good practice dying, I think, because the ego dissolves so rapidly in front of you. and the first time it's quite i found it quite scary quite frightening because it's like as if you suddenly realized you were bleeding out like you're you're watching yourself wh- who you've known yourself to be come unglued sort of demolecularize and go away and then after what's after that is just i mean bliss for me bliss mm. but then you know 30 seconds later <laughs> your ego starts reforming and it's like, no, I'm back here. Like, Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> this place is harder. You know, <laughs> this place is hard, man. Um, you know, and I back to the food piece. I just want to say, cause just to reiterate what your daughter was saying is like, this is a place where, um, things eat each other. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's this tendency to imagine, uh, I'm not disagreeing with it either that animals are sort of, above or outside of malevolent intention. It's like if a lion eats the gazelle, it's not maliciously. It's just what it does. Uh, you know, as a, from a biological perspective, we know that the gazelle actually benefits from this, as does the lion. Um, you know, like these relationships are reciprocal and symbiotic. But this is a place where things eat each other. And ultimately, you and I will be eaten too, right? I mean, mostly... Because of the world we've crafted, we'll be eaten by microbes, but we will we will also be eaten. We're, you and I are both probably being eaten by microbes right now too, right? Most of us are. are. So, uh, fungi and you know yeasts and molds and all kinds of things. This is happening right now, right? Viruses are using you as a as a parasitically to reproduce themselves, and you know there are untold parasites living amongst your beneficial bacteria in your intestine all this stuff going on in your ecosystem, your personal ecology, this is a place where stuff eats each other and no one escapes. I think there's like, the medicines teach you that too. There's a divine beauty in that. It's like, that is the temporary nature of this particular incarnation. You know, when I was a vegan, part of my, I was a raw food vegan and my obsession was, was looking back now, then I thought it was so cool. Now it seems so silly, but I was kind of obsessed with this idea of like immortality in my body, like as if I would want like, you know, now looking at that, it's like, oh my goodness, no way, you know? I think this, this like journey is beautiful as it is. I'm not looking to live forever, right? But as we start to get towards medical and scientific technologies that could allow that, it gets, you know, some interesting philosophical questions emerge, particularly about would you be cheating the purpose of being here in the first place? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, part of it is that you get eaten. That's part of it. I think that's part of it. It's kind of like, part of it is one day you're really wrinkly and gray and fellow men no longer see you as dangerous. <laughs> or if you're a woman, right, it's like, you know, men no longer see you as beautiful in the same way, right? Physically, the way that they did mm-hmm. when you're younger. So that's part of it. Like, that's important part of it. It's You need to become that person. Like part of it is you poop on yourself and you need someone to take care of you when you're a baby, right? That's part of it. It's like all of these steps, of the journey, like you don't want to cheat any of them. You don't want to skip any of them. They're all part of the learning lesson of being alive. So I just think, you know, ultimately you got to, one of the things that I think DMT helps you do, it's been a long time. I just want to clarify for the listener. It's been a long time since I've messed with it, but I used to catch the toads down in Arizona. And, uh, to me, that's like one of the coolest ways to forage. I don't know if it's considered vegan or not, but we always let the toads go, of course. But, uh, but what I always felt like it was practice for dying because you don't get to, you don't get to cheat that it's coming. Mm. Right. And well, my goodness, if you could practice, It's like if you and I are going to go hunt a stag, right? You're going to need to practice a lot. Whatever weapon system you choose, you're going to need to practice with it, right? You're going to need to prepare yourself for that moment. I remember the first bear that I killed. And in preparation for it, my goodness, I did a lot of training to prepare myself mentally for it, to prepare myself physically for it. Similarly, like one day you're going to die and DMT is a really good way to practice. The letting go process, because you see how hard that can be for people who've lived in their ego their whole life. At the end, wow, they can get mm. uh, they can they can really come unglued. So, yeah, I think the practice is really good, and accepting that you are borrowed atoms, you got to give them back. Your physical body, anyway, your Earth suit you gotta, you got to feed that back. There's hungry animals out there. There's hungry critters. They need they need your cells back. You know what I'm saying? Mm. It's a cycle, man. It's pretty exciting really, when you when you just accept it, and it also takes away a lot of the guilt and shame about like the fact that we also eat things I think see that's what I think vegans are kind of doing sometimes is they're trying to escape the this incarnation and be in the place beyond this incarnation it's the same as like as I'm sure you can tell, and the listener can tell, I have a tremendous respect for those medicines that we've been talking about, but I have my God have I seen them abused and mm-hmm. abused them I've just seen that taken so far into such an extreme and i can i've seen it really really harm people um i don't think these are meant to be used well i don't know that they if there's a meaning to it or not but i don't think it's wise to use them sort of haphazardly um one of the things that happens is you get really confused about reality very confused because you're living in this other reality so much and then trying to make this reality like that one and it's (laughs) not like that one And so, if it was possible to make it like that one, people would have already made it like that one. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like, there's been people doing this for a long time. Yeah. People that were much more well adjusted than we are. I mean, you think back to, let's say, those people in Peru where you're doing medicine 5,000 years ago, they're still down there doing medicine without all of this industrialization, without all of this uh, deforestation, without fashion and without social media and without politics, you know, they, were, they weren't able to create that utopia. This idea, it's kind of like I heard somebody say today, every generation thinks it invented sex, <laughs> <laughs> right? As it rediscovers it and thinks that they are the ones who, and, and that's like that with the medicines. People do those medicines and they start thinking that they have this idea or solution that no one's ever thought of before it's like man people have been trying to create a utopia for a long time so i think those medicines abused kind of like veganism abused it's trying to make this world into a place where things don't eat each other and where nothing has to die and everything is clean and pure all the time but it's like this isn't that place Hmm. utopia you just mentioned i mean it's
0: it's a thought it's a it's a philosophy it's an idea it's a are we living in it right now
1: in this experience this is a pretty great experience it's like let it be i think we should just let it, let it be what it actually is you know like i that's the idea for me that that true north needle what's going on in that david attenborough special that you were talking about before like you watch that and you don't think like wow i need to get in there and change this you know what i mean does that make sense it's not like wow, I really don't like how these lions are treating these gazelles. I got to get in there and change this. Man, if somebody could just empower those gazelles to stand up to those. You know what it is? It's the hierarchical, patriarchal oppression of gazelles. We need to get in there and empower them. And we need, to, we need to put these lions in their place. It's not fair that the hyenas don't have enough food. And if they had enough food, they wouldn't act like that. Maybe we need to redistribute the food. And pretty soon you can see this is what we're doing, right? The schemes that we come up with Mm -hmm. to try to do. I think it's a utopia here. I think it's a pretty amazing system. And as you know, you get out of it, what you put into it, Mm -hmm. the attitude that you approach it with. Reality is very responsive to you, right? That's one of the weird things that science isn't good at explaining yet, but somehow the attitude you bring to it and what you put into it, you kind of get back out of it or you get qualitatively back. So I think rather than thinking that everything needs to be changed to a utopia, yeah, if we could accept it as it is, all of it, Hmm. you know? I don't mean uh, that there's nothing in our society we should be changing because I think there's a lot there. But when it comes to how the world actually functions, this is the thing with veganism. It's like, because vegans believe one of two things. They either believe that humans never used to eat meat and we did and we fell from grace, or they believe we can achieve a new state where we don't have to the first one's just clearly wrong. And the second one is that meddling with things that I think we should just probably avoid a little bit.
2: <laughs> mm,
0: it's so funny. I don't want to bring it back to my journey, but one of the main realizations I had in Costa Rica was look at the world with awe and wonder. Yeah. And look okay. at your life with awe and wonder and look at every single part of this experience of life with Mm -hmm. awe and wonder and be grateful for it Mm -hmm. set your intentions without expectations but just be so in awe and wonder of this experience and going back to being whole and being the medicine and being love that is your journey. Well, that's mm. was, was my take home. That even just you and I having this conversation, and and the fact that people are listening to this at the moment, fuck, that mm. to me is awe. I'm in yeah. awe and wonder.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're you're
0: on the other side of the planet. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> crazy. <laughs> crazy. We've talked about hunting. We've talked about sex. We've talked about the history of humanity and possibly the future of it. Right. And if that is an awe inspiring and and wondrous at the same
1: time fuck yeah (laughs) yeah you know one of the things about spending time in nature you know at least from my experience of hunting and gathering is that the built environment that people have made is very pale in comparison to whatever the creation is whatever the natural world is you know whether it's the big bang or whether it's the dream mm. of God or whether it's you know uh, uh, uh the creation of a deity or how however you want to like I don't care like what your flavor of how you kind of arrive at what this place is, whatever it is appears to my eye to my mind to be made by a vastly superior intelligence or to have been born out of a vastly superior order or something, right? It's it's so much be it's so far beyond you know, just the complexity. Like if we were to pick a leaf off a tree and maybe we had a loop or a microscope and we just started to go into the complexity at a macro level down to a micro level and then actually cellular function. And then beneath that cellular function down, or maybe inside the cells, the way that there's symbiosis taking place with chloroplasts, And then we start to like dig deeper beyond that to the genetic level. Like the complexity of that is far more complex than the computers we're using right now to have this conversation it's more complex than anything people have made the built environments we spend time in are absolutely stupid they are stupid in comparison to any kind of you know if you took the equivalent amount of space of the room you're in outside just the complexity even if you were just in a dune desert the complexity of all of the pieces of sand quartz crystal sitting on top of each other would just it's it's complexity is just mind boggling right but we've been spending our time in these kind of dumb built environments and so you know they say sometimes that you'll hear this scientifically that the human brain is the most complexly networked thing known in the universe it's like man that frightens me a little bit like if the if the human mind is the most complex thing in the universe mm-hmm. it's like uh-oh we got a problem on our hands. I don't. Think, I don't think that's true. You know, uh, I think that it's a very rich and complex place, and I think we spending time with that. It, it's like it, that's the whole like go to church experience for me, or the, hey, maybe it's how I integrate some of those medicine experiences too. But it's like that's restorative to me, getting outside of human intelligence and the things we've made and the things we talk about, and you know, all of our machinations. And you go out into nature where it's like kind of doesn't care what you think or, or what you're doing. It's just doing its thing and you're just part of it. I think that's really important because I think we, we, we're all going a little bit crazy um, living in our built environments and that includes our virtual environments because we start to have these, it's sort of like I was saying before, somebody who's tripping a little too much and then they start to lose touch with the actual reality. That's what we've done in our relationship to the planet. And I think we need, a way of maintaining a... uh, It's like if you're a a group of mountaineers out on a a slope, right? And it's like you're all tied together, you're tethered, so you can't kind of slip off and fall away. It's like we need some kind of tethering to nature, something that keeps Mm -hmm. us there because we're starting to slip away from it. And as we do, we go crazy and look what we've wrought in the world, uh, you know, out, out from that kind of mentally unhealthy place. And so... Uh, I think the medicines are a part of that. I think diet's a part of that. Sex is a part of that. This unconditional love and the practice of that we've been talking about is really important for all that. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we approach it, but I think one of the biggest missing pieces is our really meaningful relationships with nature. And in particular, if I could break that down a little bit, it's having relationships to actual species so that your relationships aren't just to the people in your life, but they're to other entities. And I don't mean entities, okay, like, again, if we're talking about DMT, right? Somebody could do a DMT journey, come back and be like, well, I encountered entities. Well, it's like, maybe, maybe you did and maybe you didn't, but there are actual entities on this planet that we can all objectively look at and agree are there. Like, I can't agree with you that I saw the entities that you interacted with on your DMT journey, right? That's a subjective experience that you've had. It's a oh they were sign. There. they were there. Yeah exactly. <laughs> they were there you you experienced them but I don't experience them right? So but if sure. I introduce you to the stag we're going to both objectively agree that stag is there right? And you can develop a relationship with that species. Mm. And then that's like having another friend, but a non-human friend and more than a friend because it's not an individual it's a species. And then if you ate from 20 different animal species and 40 different plant species and 15 different fungal species and a handful of algaes, and before you know it, you have all of these non-human entities that you're in relationship with. And it, it's like a network that ties you into the natural world. And I think that's, it's not just the like eating deer is so great. I love eating deer. It is great. <laughs> but it's more than that it's about having a actual networked relationship to the natural world it's about becoming anti-fragile because of your connection to other species and it's about being able to walk through the natural world recognizing your friends rather than see there's this idea for a lot of modern humans that the natural world is threatening place
2: mm-hmm.
1: kind of i mean it's understandable it's like if You were from the, you know, a small town, and I I suddenly threw you into like Grand Central Station, you know, like Mm. suddenly put you into a completely foreign place packed with people that you don't know, the hustling and bustling at a pace that you're not familiar with. It it would probably feel a little frightening, a little overwhelming. You'd feel vulnerable. You put somebody out in the natural world who knows thirty animals and hundred plants, like I was saying before, you know, fifteen mushrooms you know, a dozen algaes, they step out into that natural environment and they don't feel out of place. They know everyone. Hmm. But you take a person who, what they see when they see nature is just a wall of green and brown. You throw them out there. They don't know anybody. Everything can feel kind of threatening. They feel vulnerable. They don't know how to have their needs met. They don't know anyone. And that's the problem. Human beings don't, and here, here's another interesting thing, And and I think you'll probably recognize this from having kids, and yeah it's a little different where you live cuz you live in a very exotic cool kind of place but here in the states there's this phenomenon where a kid typically if you ask like a like a young child to to tell you about different animals what do you think they're going to say like animals from their backyard nope they're going to start telling you about african plains animals mm-hmm. you ask any kid like just go into a daycare around, you know, you start asking. Like, hey, tell me about animals. Can be lions, tigers, going to be yeah. giraffes, hmm. zebras. It's like, oh wow, animals from a continent you don't even live on. But if you ask the kid about animals in there, like, hey, tell me what a, you know, for here, for instance, what's a brook trout? Hmm. It's like probably anybody in the state that I live in could walk 200 yards and be at a, a place where there's brook trout, but they wouldn't even know the species. That's hmm. that's the that's a huge issue. So that's kind of like as if you were suddenly moved into another country and you didn't understand who you didn't know anybody. You couldn't speak the language and you you'd had no relationships. Well, that's how people are with nature. So is it any wonder when people go into nature, they feel like it's a foreign environment and they want to run back home so quick, right? Hmm. And then when they go in there, they got to bring so much life support too, because the place is foreign to them. Our own planet has become like a foreign place to us. And I think we really need to address that because where we're headed especially with transhumanism this idea like we're going to start leaving our bodies behind and maybe even leave our planet behind these these kind of these decisions shouldn't be made by people who've never had a relationship with nature that i mean it's a foolhardy place to make a relation it's it's a foolhardy place to make those kind of decisions from it's like if you um you'd only been abused by every woman you ever met and then you were going to go try to have a loving relationship with a woman. It probably would like influence the relationship, right? Mm-hmm. You'd want to like you'd want to go through the healing process a little bit, right? It's sort of like or like what if you were a what if you were always were in bad relationships and so you're about to leave a relationship and you're going to leave it before you do any personal work on yourself. That's where we're at. We're talking about leaving our bodies behind. And uploading ourselves into machines. We're talking about pairing ourselves with machines. We're talking about taking people to Mars, but we've not healed our relationship with mother earth yet. So we're making those decisions like somebody about to leave a relationship where they've never done any personal work on making the relationship good. Hmm. Um, so I think we, we've got a lot of personal work to do. And there's a lot of components, but one of the biggest components that people are leaving unaddressed and one of the reasons they, and I know I'm ranting a long time here, but one of the reasons, Go for it. one of the reasons people leave it unaddressed is they think that they are having relationships with nature by doing things like going hiking. Okay. That would be like, that would be like walking across the stage and thinking you are an actor in a play. Hmm. It's like, man, you're not, you're not acting. You just walked across the stage. You, you know, you walk up the hill and back down the hill. That does not make you a participant in that natural environment. That doesn't mean that that walk isn't good for you. It is. It doesn't mean it's not a good starting point. It is, but it's, it does not make you an integrated part of that ecosystem. It just makes you a visitor to it. Where do we go from here? <laughs> 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 exactly so tell us about your instagram <laughs> where do people find your work daniel
0: <laughs> well I, let, let's finish that with that because it's a big meal for people to chew on and there's so many different part, flavors and uh, fatty bits and sinewy bits what we've discussed and sweet bits and maybe even some bitter bits for people <laughs> and some spiciness in there too i do want to congratulate you on a wild-fed your um
1: oh, you. your uh, your TV you. series that we started. <laughs> it's like coming down from hundred thousand feet to ten thousand feet to have that conversation but okay. it's beautiful I mean, let, parash- let me parachute down. <laughs> but, but yeah thank but you but in saying that you know really, being really proud of the project you know? being able to watch that with
0: with my daughters was a gift and just to have that available in this modern age, you know, which is very ancient. Practices, which again shows what a human being is. You've opened the door for much more of this work, and and that's why I, I guess I started this podcast by saying, I'm watching you. I see where my path is heading. I'm looking forward to being a, forming that relationship with nature in a more deep and meaningful way, instead of just being a visitor as you said. So um, thank you for opening the door f-
1: for me for that and for others. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Well, thank you. And if I could just, just sort of, I, maybe I'll just explain the show real mm-hmm. quick too for people listening, just because it, it sounds abstract, but it's pretty simple. Every episode of Wild Fed is like, we go out and we hunt something or, or fish something. So we get an animal and then we go out and we forage something. It could be a plant or multiple plants. It could be a fungus. It could be an algae like a seaweed. And then we bring those ingredients back. And uh, sometimes we cook ourselves, but usually we go to a chef or a cook. And then everybody who was involved in the hunt and the forage comes together for a meal at the end, so a sort of celebratory meal or a chance to reflect on the, you know, the season, because most of these foods are pretty seasonal. And then the season, season one, I'm, I'm now at the end of shooting season two. Uh, of the show, right. I'm just kind of wrapping up season two right now, but season one, it, you know, it follows this nice arc from the early spring and it ends in the snow in the winter fishing through the ice. And so it's a cool seasonal arc too. And the, the main focus there for me is, uh, you know, I'm not trying to get, you know, I'm not trying to like promote the idea of, everybody coming to Maine to do these things. The idea is trying to motivate people to do them where they live. And so we're working in some travel episodes so we can show sort of different places. In fact, I kind of have this dream of doing a whole season in Australia. I've got so yeah, many contacts there, you. and you guys have so much going on out there. You know, if I was hunting and gathering, if I wanted to get involved in that lifestyle, and I lived in Australia, boy, there's some cool stuff out there to get involved in. So let's do it. Um, it's a region of the world I really want to make some shows and explore from a culinary perspective, you know. Uh, but it's kind of a culinary adventure series, and I try to, I try to keep the tenor and the tone very reverent, but not pretentious. Mm-hmm. I don't like when reverent gets pretentious. I have a hard time sometimes when things get a little too a too ceremonial. Cause sometimes I'm like, man, this is not authentic to me. It's starting to feel like we're all doing dress up. Mm-hmm. So I try not to let it go that far, but it definitely has a tone of reverence about the animals and plants we work with. Sure does. But it also has, I use modern weapons. I'm not trying to do this all like, you know, out of sticks and stones. I, I use modern equipment. Um, so it's like a balance. It's kind of a trying to find the right balance of all that stuff. Um, you know there's sort of there's a lot of friends involved a lot of experts along the way and i just try to keep it a real respectful approach and it's not based on any indigenous traditions you know it's just sort of modern people from the developed world doing trying to figure this stuff out again so um yeah it's it's i'm really happy with, with the show and there's a lot i want to explore with it and i'm hoping that it's um ultimately, what I want to do is is help to create a wild food renaissance. Because like I said, I think, you know, if we're going to have a conversation about going to Mars, which we are having, the thing that bothers me, it's not the conversation about whether or not we go to Terraform Mars, it bothers me that there's no, it's like, if you have, a, if you're going to have a conversation about veganism, I think you should have a conversation about the carnivore diet too. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I just think it doesn't make sense to In this binary world, it doesn't make sense to lean only on one side. I think that we should look at both sides. Right now in the United States, we have this massive cold civil war taking place between the right wing and the left wing politically. Mm -hmm. I always say to people, every plane that I've known that flies properly has both a right and left wing. Mm. Right? So... If we're going to talk about Mars, we should also be talking about having a real relationship with the natural world too. Both things need to coexist simultaneously. I don't like this idea that we're just abandoning the past or just abandoning the natural world like it's not important at the same time that we're running around telling everyone to save the environment. It makes no sense. Mm. Save a thing you have no relationship with? It's kind of hard to do that. So, Yeah, so I'm hoping that this is uh, through food, we can really like bring people into stewardship of natural places and natural resources. And by the way, I think another thing you'll find interesting is one theme I would like to bring into the show, I think it would be neat in future episodes that points to wild forage entheogens Mm. and show that because... I've had the opportunity. There's a, there's a handful of entheogens that I've been able to work with that I was able to harvest myself. And entheogens, just for anybody that uh, hasn't would, heard of it? Yeah, these sort of serotonin-like plant molecules we've been talking about. Plant combinations like ayahuasca or single plants. Um, Cactus. Like San Pedro or peyote mm-hmm. uh, or fungus, like the, what we call psilocybin mushrooms, but my Latin-speaking friend tells me should be psilocybin. <laughs> these... Mm. These substances uh, are part of the natural human diet. We know that because everywhere we look in the world, people were using them and continued to use them right up until colonization. And now they're finding the way into the colonies as well. So they're pretty fundamental to who we are. So to me, that's just an extension of foraging and that's something I'd like to bring in um, as well over time. So uh, I just want people to see how amazing... The thing is too, um, last thing I want to say about the show... I d- this is not like, oh, we're eating trail mix again. We're eating food. I mean, I, how many episodes did you get to see? I've seen two, and I've got the third one I'm going to watch tonight. Cool. The food looks good, right? It's not like we're just, we're not eating like, we're not eating like twigs and rocks, you know? It's like, some of the episodes we're, we're eating like very nice, nice meals. And so I want people to see that wild food is the best food you can't buy.
0: Mm, and you got me salivating, that's for sure.
1: And uh, the food the food
0: <laughs> is simple, but delicious. And, you know, it's all, it's all real.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's real. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I kind of want to share all that with people. And um, just, you know, it's been a blessing to make the show. And I'd love to finish
0: off with, because oh, it blew me away when you were Catching the seaweed and harvesting the seaweed, not catching it. Yeah. Even though you were in yeah. the water catching it, uh, harvesting the seaweed <laughs> with that fella. He said something about that most people think of seaweed as, as a plant, but yeah,
1: it's something yeah. Different. seaweeds are not plants. That's why I keep saying algaes. I didn't realize this actually in that episode. I think you see me learn that for the first time. Mm, me too. I, I thought I had the foundations of a lot of this stuff down. I, it's not often. Okay, like where I'm at now after a couple decades of being obsessed with food and where food comes from and the origin of the species, of the domesticated species that we eat as food and all that, uh, lots of new pieces of information come my way, but not ones often that actually like make me have to reorganize everything that I think I know. And that detail, I just thought that seaweeds were plants. I just didn't know that they exist in another kingdom. So in my mind, I always thought about we eat from these Four kingdoms of food is how I used to phrase it. I mean, I used to talk about this all the time. We eat plants. That's one kingdom, plantae. We eat animals, animalia. It's another kingdom. We eat bacteria and microorganisms. You think about the fermented foods that we Mm -hmm. eat. And then we eat fungi, so mushrooms, fruit bodies, even the yeasts and alcohol and things like that. But I didn't realize that algaes are in this kingdom called the protists. And protists is a kind of a weird loose kingdom that we put stuff in that doesn't really fit anywhere else. But, um, but that's where algaes are grouped. So yeah, they're another kingdom of life. And they, uh, as he mentions in that show, they do, they were doing sexual reproduction before any other kingdom of life had figured out how to do that. Um, they, they're very unique things about, uh, seaweeds that, you know, much of which is revealed in the show, but they're a very unique thing and harvesting them is also a really cool experience. I mean, I think, you know, in Australia, you guys must be kind of, no matter where you are, you're pretty close to sea level. eh? I mean, it's not like, uh, the interior is not massively habitated, right? We have some great seaweed here. Yeah, I bet you do. And you're at sea level, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like a lot of people in the States, they'll, they'll never see the ocean in their lifetime, but, uh. But, you know, if you have access to the sea, you know, some of the foods that you can, you can get there are really incredible and seaweeds are one of them. And, you know, that, that seaweed salad that I make in that episode, I mean, geez, Mm. if you could taste that, I wish there was a way. It's funny. We don't have a technology yet with, with the tech, like we're about to have technology where, you know, if you and I did this interview three years from now, we'd probably be in a virtual landscape somewhere Mm. Having what felt like the experience of being side by side, even though we were doing it virtually, but that's where the technology's headed. But we don't have technology yet that allows you to taste something remotely, hmm. which is interesting to me. Uh, so there's no way for me to go, like, here's what that tasted like. You know, I, I can only show you video and audio of me saying, mm, <laughs> but you can't taste And your them, new you know? wife, <laughs> <laughs> she loved it. So yeah, exactly. she converted her. So that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, man.
0: Yeah. It's cool you got to see our wedding then, too, a little bit. Mate, it was so good. When you come to Australia, yeah. I think I might invite you. Actually, you're invited to Australia, great, and we will do a uh, hunt together, and uh, okay. we'll show you around. And uh, I'm looking forward to
1: starting my preparation for hunting a stag with you as well. So yeah, All right, great. So you start lining it up and make sure it's legal, and then uh, and <laughs> I also really want to get uh, a hunt a kangaroo. So can you please make sure that you uh, work well, that in? That that was in but... the journey
0: as well. Hunting with the indigenous <laughs> over here for. For, yeah. um, if, for and we'll film it as well so
1: man it, i wish that i had had a little time i have such an interest and fascination with um the life way of the indigenous people of that continent it's uh if you do get a chance our film is the magic pill which is on netflix and we spend a little bit of time
0: uh, with the indigenous oh, basically great, okay. celebrating that they had
1: it right <laughs> you mm-hmm. know we fucked it up Sixty thousand years man uh-huh. out of Africa such a cool story
0: and um yeah such there's a, cool a there's a lot of wisdom and um
1: Mm-hmm. knowledge there that yeah I would challenge any vegan to go to them and tell them that they've had it wrong this whole time they weren't supposed to eat any meat
0: mm-hmm. well we, we go hunting with them and we catch stingray <laughs> with them and
1: fish and oh yeah oh man stingray is good eat
0: mm-hmm. we caught that we so cooked it and we ate it all and it was absolutely delicious, delicious. brother yeah, I love you and thank you so much for your time this has been a, a wonderful conversation with lots of twists and turns much like a vine and uh, I love it
1: So oh, thank you brother thanks so much Pete.
2: The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views views opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.